Our study today will be from Genesis chapter 3, but we'll begin reading with the last verse of chapter 2. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, Yet your husband will be, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Lord, we have seen already in Genesis that you are our maker and not we ourselves. We have seen that You own us, that we are responsible to You, and that You are a good and loving God who ought to be obeyed. That it's a good thing to obey You. 
And yet we see in this chapter and we see in our very own lives that though we know that You are good and merciful and kind, and we know that You're in authority of our lives, we still choose to disobey. We're reminded in this chapter of who we really are and where we really come from. And we're reminded looking forward in the Bible to the Savior that we so desperately need. So today, show us ourselves, show us Yourself, and show us our Savior. I pray from Genesis 3. Amen. Well, I begin by reading chapter 2, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed because I wanted to draw your attention back to the wonder and to the innocence that we saw in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. We looked at the Garden of Eden last week and we looked at the creation the week before. We found that the earth and the garden were places of beauty. They were places of bounty. They were places that were completely unmarred by sin and its corrupting, polluting, heartbreaking effects. The garden, in fact, was the birthplace of marital intimacy, which we said last week was so wonderful. And it was the birthplace of man's intimacy with God. That's where Adam and Eve walked with God was in this garden. And God said in chapter 1 that everything that He had made was good. So Adam and Eve's world in Genesis 1 and 2 was, if you will, a paradise. And if Genesis 1 and 2 were a paradise, then sadly Genesis 3 and the chapters that follow are a description of paradise lost. Because through the one foolish act that we just read of, Adam and Eve lost their innocence, they lost their dignity, they lost their home, They lost their eternality and they lost their relationship with God. At least they had not the relationship that they had had previously. And so, says Romans 5, have you and I. We have lost all those things as well. Listen to Romans 5.13. Through one man, we just read about, through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam and Eve lost their paradise and so did you and I. The reason why we are the way we are, diseased and discontent and disappointed and disobedient and disenfranchised from God is because Adam and Eve sinned and because we have continued in their ways. We have inherited their sin sickness, says Romans 5. And the reason our world is the way it is is because the whole world is groaning under the weight of people like you and us who sin. People like Adam and Eve who sin. That's why the world is in the mess that it's in. So what we need to do this morning is we need to come to terms with Genesis 3 and what it says about us and what it says about our sin, what it says about Adam's sin and how that applies to our day so that, as I prayed, we might be driven Not to despair in our sin, but driven to the Savior who saves us from our sin. So as we look at Genesis 3, the first thing that we need to note is that paradise lost begins with the lies of the serpent. Verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. As soon as the serpent appears on the scene, things begin to go south. Unless we be unsure who this serpent is, we can compare Genesis 3.1 with Revelation 12.9 comparing the beginning of the Bible with the end of the Bible. And in Revelation 12.9 we find out who the serpent is. He's called the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan 
who deceives the whole world. Two things to learn about the serpent from Genesis, I mean from Revelation 12:9. First, that the serpent is Satan himself. That's who's doing the deceiving here. Satan masquerading in the body of a snake. And the second thing we learn from Revelation 12:9 is that the serpent, the devil, is a deceiver. He deceives the whole world. Jesus called him the father of lies and said that when he speaks lies, he speaks his own native language. That's how bad it is. And so it's no surprise that when he comes onto the scene in Genesis 3 and he has his very first biblical speaking part that we find him from the very beginning uttering deceit to the woman. I just pause and wonder right now if he's been speaking these same kinds of things to any of you this week. I wonder if you've been listening to him. Whenever he speaks, Jesus said, he speaks lies because that is his native language. And when he speaks, you might not originally have realized that he was lying to you. Because, as Genesis 3.1 says, he's crafty. He's crafty. He doesn't come out right out and tell you that he's lying to you. He doesn't come right out and tell you that he wants to destroy you. He's crafty. He's sneaky. Not obvious with his lies. He tells us things that almost sound true, but that are actually very false, false enough to destroy our lives. And that's what he did with Eve. And so what I want to do in these first five verses is just recognize the kind of lies that he tells. I want us to think about his strategies. And you think about how he might be strategizing in your own life even today. Satan's first strategy we find was to confuse Eve. He starts out by saying, indeed, has God said? That word indeed is important. A modern paraphrase would be, are you sure that that's what God said? Are you certain that that's what God really meant, that you shouldn't eat from that tree? He's trying to confuse her, trying to make her think that maybe she didn't hear God correctly. She's a woman who has a very clear commandment from God in the earlier chapters of this book. And she repeats the commandment in chapters 2 and 3. She knew what God said, but the serpent now is planting seeds of doubt in her mind, and he plants seeds of doubt in our minds, saying, are you sure that that's what God said? Maybe that verse doesn't really mean what it looks like it means. Maybe when the Bible says no sex before marriage, it just means intercourse, but not, you know, all the other stuff that young people do when they fool around. Maybe that's what it really means. Maybe when God says, honor your father and mother, He really just means honor them if they're honorable. See the kind of thing Satan tells us? Are you sure that God really means what He said? Maybe He means this. And maybe He means that. Satan been whispering those kind of things to you lately? Making you doubt whether or not what's clear in the Bible is actually true? If He is, you need to remember that He is the Father of lies. His first strategy was to confuse. His second strategy of deceit was to try to make God out to be stingy. And we see that in verse 1 as well. Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Pause there. Of course God didn't say that. God actually said that they could eat from any tree of the garden back in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, except for this one tree. So he's twisting things around a little bit in order to make God out like he's trying to hold things back from Adam and Eve that would be good for him. God doesn't want you to eat from any of these trees. Why did he put them here then? He's just trying to tempt you. That's the kind of thing that he's saying to Eve. 
He takes one small restriction that God puts on us for our good and He makes God out to be a spoil sport. And that's how many people think of God. He's a spoil sport in the sky. So the devil says things like this to us. God is always trying to spoil your fun. What's the matter with looking at a few pictures in Playboy? After all, you're not hurting anybody. What's up with this God? He's always trying to ask you for your money. Is He trying to make you broke? It's the kind of thing Satan says to us. He's been saying that to some of you, I'm sure. God is trying to keep you from having everything that you ought to have. And when He speaks like that, you need to be careful and you need to remember that lying is His native language. So, he tries to confuse Eve. He tries to make her think that God is stingy. And so far, when we get to verses 2 and 3, we find that Eve's doing well. Satan has thrown two nasty sliders at her and she's let both of them go by for ball. She says, I'm not listening to what you said. God said we can eat from any tree, just not this one tree. So far, she's doing well. But Satan doesn't give up that easily, does he? He doesn't give up that easily with us either. And so he pushes on to his third strategy. And his third strategy is to try to make sin seem like a small thing. So he hasn't been able to convince Eve that eating the fruit was actually okay. So now what he's going to do is say, okay, God said don't eat the fruit, but is it really that big a deal? Surely, verse 4, you won't die. It's as if he's saying to her, okay, okay, God says don't eat from the tree. We all get that. But come on. Do you really think this loving God would actually kill you over something like this? It's just a piece of fruit after all. Go ahead. You know God will forgive you. It's what God does after all. You heard Satan talk like that before? I have. I've counseled with people who have. I had a lady in Mississippi that was in our church and she received a marriage proposal from a man who wasn't a believer, a man who wasn't the kind of man that she needed to be with, And she knew that, but he wanted to marry her. And so she came to me with a question. She said this, I know that I shouldn't marry Mr. X, but if I do, God will forgive me anyway, right? I'm not going to tell you what I told her, but I hope you know the answer. The point is, the devil was trying to trick her. Because God is forgiving, you can go ahead and do things that you know you shouldn't do. Thankfully, she finally realized it and she said no. And so must you. When the devil comes to you with a temptation for sin and says, just do it and then ask for forgiveness later. That's a lie. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. So Eve didn't fall yet and Satan had one more strategy. He uses it with Eve and he uses it with us and it's his most effective strategy and it is to appeal to our pride. Look what he says in verse 5. God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See what he's doing with Eve? Sin will actually make you better. Sin will actually build you up. Sin will actually enable liberation. Sin will actually enable self-actualization. And you will be able to move up the ladder and be wiser than you were by having this experience that God has told you not to have. And Eve falls right in. And we find that her husband, who should have been leading her, but now listening to her, does the same. Many people in our day do as well. 
Things that we know are clearly wrong that we think will actually make us free, make us better, make us be the people that we really were made to be. Here's how Satan talks to us. A few examples. Young people, go ahead and take a drag from that joint. It'll actually relax your mind. Go ahead, men, and separate from your wife. You'll finally be able to do whatever you want. Go ahead, parents, and take out that frustration. After you're done, you'll feel much better. See the kind of things he says? If you just give in to the temptation, then you'll be released from everything that's inside of you and you'll feel much better. Lies. All of them are lies. Anytime you sin, it doesn't actually free you. It enslaves you. Sinning just tightens the chains that are already around your neck as we're going to see in just a moment. Before we see that, I want to review to you what Satan does and then we'll move on. First, he tries to confuse us about what God has clearly said. Secondly, he tries to convey to us a picture of a stingy God. Thirdly, he tries to console us with the idea that sin is actually no big deal. And fourthly, he tries to convince us that sin will liberate us and make us all that we can be. The devil is, through and through, a con man. Constantly cutting against the truth to try to ruin our lives. And Eve, along with her weak-willed husband, was about to discover that in devastating fashion. Satan was not out to make her free. He was out to make her a slave. So look at verse 6. Why did Eve fall for the devil's pack of lies? Well, because, verse 6, she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. It's what 1 John 2.16 calls the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the tree was good for food. The lust of the eyes, it was a delight to the eyes. And the boastful pride of life, it was desirable to make one wise. It is our eyes and our flesh and our pride that are the key entryways for the devil's temptations. Our flesh and our eyes and our pride make us sin just the way they did with Eve. You can think that out and see that it's true. Our flesh wants a God with a little g that we can see and touch, so we create an idol. Or if we live in America, we just make an idol out of our spouse or our kids or our job or our favorite sports team or whatever it is. We want something that we can see and touch. We want results that are measurable. That's the flesh. It causes us to sin. Our eyes are bigger than our stomachs, and so we go through the buffet line one too many times or two too many times, or maybe some of us three too many times, and we sin against our bodies because our eyes see something that we think we have to have. And that's just a minor example. The pride of life cannot stand that the neighbor across the street has a nicer car or a bigger TV or a younger wife than us, and so we covet. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life are the key entryways to sin. And we learn that right at the beginning from Eve. She had all the freedom in the world except for one restriction and her eyes, her flesh, and her pride got her. And they get us and we live with a lot more temptations 
all around than she did. Let me just say to you as we move on that those things, those fleshly lusts, those lusts of the eyes, the things that we covet because of our pride, those things never, ever satisfy. Sin never keeps its promises. If we're going to learn anything from Genesis 3, we'd better learn that sin never keeps its promises. And you can see that as we read on in the lives of Adam and Eve. They were promised liberation, self-actualization, and instead, verse 7, they got shame. They were naked and they were ashamed. They were promised by Satan that they would become like God, and instead, in verses 8-10, through they found themselves hiding from God. Sin did not come through like they thought it would. And sin's promises are always a mirage. They always leave us thirsty and hungry. And every one of us can testify to the fact that that is true. Those relationships that we've, some of us in our past entered against the will of God have left scars in our lives that may never go away. God is merciful and forgives, but He leaves scars in our lives so that we don't forget. Those extra trips to the buffet line leave us miserable on a Sunday afternoon, don't they? Put some of us on an operating table later in our lives. The nicer car, the bigger TV, the younger wife, what about those things? They all grow old and outdated too, don't they? Leaving us just as hungry, just as covetous as we were before. Sin never satisfies and it never keeps its promises. Some of you have done those things. You've been there and done that and you know that that's true. And others of you are sitting this very morning with forbidden fruit juice dripping down your chins. You're in the middle of it right now. Well, let me ask you, are things turning out the way you hoped? Probably not. Are you as happy as you thought you would be? I doubt it. Is sin in the end going to pay off? Not a chance. Not a chance. Sin never keeps its promises. But while you're under the preaching of God's Word, those of you who are eating the fruit right now today, there's a chance to repent. There's a chance to change your mind and change your actions while God is speaking. There's an opportunity to lay down the fruit, confess your sins to the Lord, and stop the cycle of destruction before it goes any further. And I just want to urge some of you to do that this morning. I don't know what those sins are, but you do. And you can lay them down by God's grace. Or, you can continue to live in the pattern of Adam and Eve. The pattern of Adam and Eve was, they were caught, they realized that sin hadn't paid off, but instead of confessing their sins right away, they made excuses. And they shifted the blame to one another. Read verses 11-13. through 13. And He said, God, that is, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. You see, Adam and Eve, they're in the very same predicament that some of us are in this morning. An opportunity to confess or an opportunity to make excuses. An opportunity to be cleansed or an opportunity to continue in our sin. Instead of admitting their sin, they made excuses. I've said this before, and I say it again this morning because I think it's so uh, apropos to what we're looking at. The Bible is wonderfully relevant to modern times. 
Don't ever let anybody tell you, well, that stuff's thousands of years old. What does that have to say today? It has a lot to say today because we today are doing the same things that they did then. Here we have Adam and Eve millennia ago saying the same childish things that modern men and women say when they're caught with their hands in a cookie jar. Instead of confessing, they just point the finger somewhere else. Just listen to the news and you'll see that it's true. You find people in the news, on the news that are living in deviant sexual lifestyles claiming God made me this way. You find lawyers defending criminal actions that people have done by saying his parents made him that way. Or the Catholic priests made him that way. Or the school system made him that way. No one is ever able to take responsibility for themselves. Then there's the age-old excuse that Eve taught us, the devil made me do it. Everyone's always pointing fingers elsewhere and no one seems to be able to take responsibility for themselves. And many of us hear those kind of things or read them in the newspaper and we say, this is unbelievable. Doesn't anybody own up to their sin anymore? But the answer is, not many people do. But we shouldn't be surprised that not many people do because through Adam and Eve, blame shifting was encoded into the sinful DNA of the human race. We got it from them. Just listen to what they say again. First, Unbelievably almost, Adam points his finger at God. He's caught and he points at God. Listen, verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me from the tree and I ate. It's your fault, God. If you wouldn't have given me this woman, I wouldn't have done what I did. We can read that just plain out or we can read it with the inflection that he must have said you did this you gave her to me and then he points the finger at his wife as well the woman whom you gave to me made me do it and then when god looks at the woman for an explanation she points to the serpent and says the devil made me do it no one in this story is able to take responsibility or their actions. And the reason is because they were becoming what we so clearly are, people infected with a universal disease of blame shifting. And it's sinful. We're caught up right in the mix. And every time one of us is caught doing wrong, there is the temptation to put the blame elsewhere. We don't always do it, but the temptation is always there. Let me give you a few examples. I know I lose my temper sometimes, but that's just the way that I am. I.e., God made me that way. Or, I know my child is a little bit bossy and unruly, but that just means that he or she has the potential someday to be a leader. I.e., God made my kid this way. I know I shouldn't talk to my wife like that, but I'm under a lot of stress at work right now, and it really affects me. I know I shouldn't read these racy romance novels, but my husband's not exactly a knight in shining armor anymore. It's always somebody else's fault when we do wrong. And then there's the childhood classic that some of us are still using today to our shame. He started it. Some of you may have said that this week. Following in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. And do you see what I'm driving at? Anytime we give one of these I know I shouldn't but kind of sentences We're on dangerous ground. We need to just stop with the I know I shouldn't and then go on to the I'm sorry and I was wrong. Because though our environment 
And though our upbringing and though the social norms that are around us certainly affect the way we behave, they don't, do not excuse the way we behave. Our lives and our emotions and our decision-making are affected by environment, but they are not determined by the environment. We are the ones who are choosing to act the way we act. Nullifying that truth is actually to nullify the grace of God. You say, so-and-so made me be this way, then you're saying, well, there's not a God in heaven who can make you be any different. And that is a grave sin. God is big enough to overcome the darkest environments and the heaviest baggage. And He says in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that whenever we're tempted, He will always provide a way of escape so that we're without excuse when we choose to disobey. And the fact that we're without excuse is underscored by the fact that with all their excuses, God listened, God heard, and then God punished anyway. All the blame shifting that went on and God punished anyway, including punishing the serpent. So let me just pause here and say, God acknowledges the provokers in our lives. God acknowledges the people who affect the way that we were brought up or who affect the way that we work or whatever it is. God acknowledges those people and He punishes them accordingly as He did with Satan in verses 14 and 15. But He also deals straight up with us when we are the perpetrators for not taking the way of escape. And the long and short of the punishment for Adam and Eve was this in verses 16 down through the end of the chapter. They lost their capacity to rightly enjoy God and His gifts. The perfection that they had experienced was replaced with pain in childbirth in the first part of verse 16. The joyful marriage that they had became an unequal partnership in the second part of verse 16. Adam's happy cultivation, loving to do his work, became sweaty toil in verse 17. The beautiful garden that they lived in became a briar patch in verse 18. And their once imperishable bodies began, began to de decay and die in verse 19. And then in verses 22 through 24, we find them completely thrust out of their garden homes. Everything that God had once called good was now turned on its ear. And we find as we read on in the book of Genesis that murder and rape and disease and drunkenness and death and so on were the continuing results of this one foolish decision. And as we look at our culture, we can find out that the mixed up messy world in which we live today is the way it is because of the original sin of Adam and Eve and because we follow in their footsteps. So the Bible said in Romans 3 at the beginning of the service, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. And the reason is because Romans 5.18, through one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men. What Romans 5 is teaching there is that the curse that fell so heavily on Adam and Eve in these last verses of chapter 3 has also fallen on their descendants. We live with sin and we live in a sinful world and we're trapped without a Savior. A survey of human history and a survey of our modern culture will show us that that's true. From that day to this day, women have experienced pain in childbirth, haven't they? And pain in bringing up those children. It's a heartache to be a mother sometimes. And some of you know that full well. From that day to this day, women have been mistreated, degraded, and ruled over by sinful men, just like God said would happen. 
in verse 16. From that day to this day, men have toiled in order that they might eat instead of eating so that they could joyfully enjoy their work. Just like God said in verse 17. From that day to this, the earth has been a dangerous place, a place of thorns and thistles, both literally and figuratively, just like God said in verse 18. And from that day to this, every living thing has returned to the dust from which we were made. Just like God said, we begin dying the moment we are born. And from that day to this, men and women have lived in separation from their Creator. Just like God said in verses 22 through 24. And the fact that there are so many world religions that are trying to get us back to God is proof that we know that we're separated from Him. The sin of Adam and Eve has created for us a world that needed to be redeemed. And not only that, it's created for us individual lives, including our own, that desperately need to be redeemed. We are just as guilty as them. We are just as deserving of punishment and death as they are. And we are just as much in need of a merciful God as they were. So let me ask you as we come to a conclusion, have you come to terms with these facts? Have you come to admit how bad things really are? You come to admit how bad you really are and how badly you really need a Savior. You come to admit that you can't do it on your own, that you cannot, through religious observance or good works, work your way to God. Or are you still, like Adam and Eve, hiding yourself from God? Still like Adam and Eve, shifting the blame to others when you're caught? Still like Adam and Eve, trying to cover your nakedness with a few man-sewn-together fig leaves? will never work. will never work. God knows where to find you when you're hiding, doesn't He? God sees right through the excuses. And God is not impressed when we sew together the fig leaves of religious observance or outward obedience. He's not impressed. He knows what we are. And we know, if we're honest with ourselves, what we are. So trying to cover up our sins will never work. And as you look at verse 21, you find it's not even necessary to do so. Verse 21 says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. After all that they had done, God was merciful to them and He covered up their shame and their sin. Isn't that amazing? They deserved to die, yet God forgave them and He covered their shame. That's called grace. A totally free and undeserved gift. Free to them, but it cost some poor animal its life, didn't it? Something had to die in order for Adam and Eve's sins to be covered. And so it is with us. God offers you and I the same free gift, a covering of forgiveness for our sins and for the shame of our sins. But it costs someone their life. Namely, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Before God will clothe you in the righteousness of the Lamb, you have to come to the Lamb without the blame shifting, without the excuses, without the fig leaves of self-help trying to cover up who you really are and admit that you are desperately in need of a Savior. You need to come and say with the hymn writer, nothing in my hand I bring, Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless 
look to Thee for grace. Foul I to Thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Naked, Lord, I come to Thee for dress. Have you done that? You come to the seed of the woman in verse 15 who through His cross would crush the serpent's head? Have you come to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Experiencing the hope and the life change that occur when God covers your sins? Are you sure that if you died today that you would be with Jesus in paradise? Or are you content, like so many others, to live and to die in paradise lost? Father, help us not be content with the lives that we live and the world that we live in. Help us to see from Genesis 3 what created that world, rebellion and disobedience, and what makes that world continue as it is, rebellion and disobedience. And help us be completely discontent with living in that kind of sin, both in our world and more importantly in our own individual lives. And help us come to the Lamb of God who covers over the sins of the world. Thank you for providing a covering for us. I pray that you would draw us to your son now. I ask it in his name. Amen.